Good evening, current affairs listeners. I am here with a tremendously special guest. I am here with the fine artist and writer Molly Crabapple. Molly's resume is probably too extensive for me to even begin to start with here. She has written two books, uh, Drawing Blood, a memoir, and most recently, Brothers of the Gun. Her reporting has been published pretty much everywhere from Rolling Stone to the New York Times. She, you can find a lot of her work in the New York Review of Books. She's received a pile of fellowships. She's reported from dozens of countries around the world, and that's only the, the beginning. But I'm looking forward to our, our conversation. And I guess I, the first thing is, I was every time I look at your work, I looked at your your summary of what you did, what you'd done in 2018, and this is on Molly's website, mollycrabapple.com. And it's it's rather stunning because not only did you do murals and reporting and New York Review of books articles, you have been everywhere in the course of one year and done more in the course of one year than I think most artists and journalists can hope to do in about a decade. And my theory of this is that you have somewhere a kind of Jeff Koons-like factory of (laughs) unpaid interns that are all collectively Molly Crabapple. I used to have that, but they actually... uh killed the overlord, the former Molly Crabapple, sort of stuffed her and are using her as an animatronic puppet that is run by AI, and now they have all retired to luxury. I actually was a former assistant myself. Yeah. So, I mean, this is true, right, in the art world, that there are a lot of times when, you know, someone's productivity is is a little bit deceptive. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is the... I don't want to say it's a dirty secret because dirty secret implies that there's shame and that people know enough to hide this. But I would say perhaps most major conceptual artists have vast factories of extremely underpaid assistants who are much, much more talented than them who are creating their work for them while these you know, artists are basically going to fancy parties and kissing the ass of oligarchs. And this is something I find so unspeakably disgusting. I think I've had more awkward conversations with fancy pants artists about this than any other subject. I say, you're not an artist if you don't paint, just like someone's not a ballerina if they don't dance. And I've been told that I'm regressive and evil. It's like being a supervisor, right? They're supervisors of an operation. Exactly. It's called being a manager, called being a boss. You can't just buy credit for other people's talents. I mean, I guess you can, but it's morally wrong. What's incredible to me about Coons specifically is that he began on Wall Street and then, like, realized, like, the skills of being a Wall Street trader could actually apply in making you successful in the art world. Well, the art... The purpose of the art world now is not to produce great art, obviously. The purpose is to have a vehicle for money to move. The art almost isn't important. You know, in some ways it reminds me of, you know, the blockchain and blockchain ledgers where, you know, the value of something is established by all of these proofs of work. You know, the value of art isn't established by quality. It's established by what a bunch of uh, rich people and well-connected critics thought of it and, you know, what it sold for at auction. And in a lot of ways, just like you don't need a physical coin, you don't need a physical Bitcoin, there's no physical gold sphere. You don't actually need the painting. That's kind of besides the point. It's just about the value. Well, you know, the same is true in the publishing world with books, right? Where publishers are looking for a concept of a book that will sell. And if your concept is good, they don't actually really care about the book itself. Like, they don't really edit. This was one of those stunning things to me about publishers is that a lot of publishers don't really edit the books because the book is a product to be sold. And if you've got 200 pages of text, then that's all they're looking for. Exactly. And a picture of yourself standing, you know, with makeup on your face, crossing your arms, looking nobly. Though I will say that art is fundamentally different than publishing in one thing, which is that to buy a book, you need $25. 
Whereas to buy top end art, you need a million dollars. I'd say perhaps the majority of Americans can afford to drop $20, $25, whereas only a few very bad people in the world can afford to drop a million dollars on something to decorate their house with. So when you're trying to sell a book, you're trying to appeal to a broad audience that can be made up of good people. Whereas when you're trying to sell fine art, you're trying to appeal only to bad people. The other side of it, though, of course, is that, yeah, it's true that if you want top end, you know, in, in quotes, art, you have to pay large amounts of money. But the other side of it, what the real stunning revelation to me as the editor of a magazine commissioning art every month has been, is that there are so many people who are incredibly talented and get paid absolutely nothing. Like, how I'm amazed how cheaply we can get incredible, incredible art. So one of the things about this is that in art, there's a real class division. There's people who are considered fine artists, there's the Kunzes of the world, and then there are people who are considered illustrators, who are the people you're talking about, who can actually draw things people like and that are beautiful and interesting. And yeah. yeah, illustrators are really underpaid and it takes a long time to get that skill. I mean, I've noticed that places where you would expect illustrators to be commissioned, they're not commissioned. Book jackets, a lot of the time, just use like text-based graphic design, very little actual illustration. Magazines don't really hire illustrators nearly as much anymore. Our magazine, we were able to make it beautiful really quickly just because we hire illustrators and other places don't. I have one of your covers framed on my wall, by the way. It's the cover of the oh. Black cat smoking. Oh, I know. She's amazing. Alexandra, she's great. It looks like the baby cat from Master and Margarita. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, I, there's a quote. So I was just reading Drawing Blood and there's a quote that just struck me and just like made my blood boil when I read it because you talked to, at one point early in your career, you went to see, you got a meeting with the art director for the New York Times Book Review and showed him your portfolio and he says, oh, we tend to focus on commissioning intelligent art. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> What does that mean? What do they mean when they say that? I don't know. I mean, to be fair, my drawing that I did was very bad. I'm not going to defend my my skills as a 19-year-old illustrator. I definitely was not someone who was born brilliant. But I don't know what they meant. I don't know. Maybe they meant more like sort of black lines or dowdy subjects. I don't know. What struck me is it wasn't, it's, this is bad. It's This is not, you know, the elevated kind of art that we want for the New York Times book review. I think I might have been drawing semi-pornographic things for the New York press, honestly. That's the thing. There's the sense that that's in some ways looked down upon. One of the truly striking things to me with artist friends has been that when they do things that are very simple, they're often not treated as being sophisticated. That when they do things that are very technically sophisticated but don't, you know, confuse people, it's treated as somehow unintelligent. It's is that, is that a correct impression? It's absolutely true. And, you know, a lot of it comes from um, a contempt for labor that's endemic in the art world. Mm. I one time had this artist tell me that it was all right that he didn't do his own work because, quote, people were his brushes. It's like it's something a dictator would say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It definitely is. But he didn't see anything wrong with that. It was seen as, well, you know, these people, they just do the craft, right? They just carve the sculptures. They just paint the paintings. And that's not intelligent. That's not like brain work. What's important is brain work and to think of the concept. And if you think differently and if you fetishize, you know, this grubby working with chemicals and dust, then, you know, you're regressive, you're backwards, you're counter-revolutionary. But I've always thought that... This elevation of like the concept at the exclusion of 
you know, all else was just a way of devaluing the people that actually do work. I have a friend who's a brilliant silversmith. And when she was at art school, you know, she was trying to practice her craft and get good at making the human form in silver. And her professors disliked her and didn't think what she was doing was any good, not because she wasn't a brilliant silversmith, but because she was just doing female bodies. And when they asked, you know, what her concept was, she was like, I'm trying to figure out how to make the female body in silver. And it was like, but if you don't have high concepts, then you're not really doing art. Exactly. And it's so ridiculous. And this is part of why our world is so ugly, by the way, because if you look at, you know, the time that my great grandfather was working as a decorator for he used to like do those, what do you call them? Those cool like stucco rosettes and Rococo ornaments and like cupids and shit on ceilings of rich people's houses. At the time that he was doing that, he was using his skills as an artist, doing things not just in rich people's homes, but also, you know, in movie theaters, funeral homes and brothels, all sorts of places, shopping malls. <laughs> he was incorporating his art into daily life. But that is exactly the sort of thing that those type of professors would look down upon. And for them, you should only have you know, special art and special art should be in special places like museums. And if you're not doing special high concept art, there's no point in it even existing. But for the world to be beautiful, there has to be art that's not high concept and there has to be a lot of it. And it has to be everywhere, right? It has to be over all of the walls and the gardens and in the parks. It has to be, you know, adorning all of existence. It can't just be confined to these like special white cubes where special people go to. One thing that strikes me though is that you openly use words like beautiful. And I think that's in, in itself you know, kind of controversial. What do you mean when you say you know, the world should be beautiful or there are things that we can do to make things around us look more beautiful? I know that the exact definition of what beautiful means will vary from one person to the next. So when I speak about it, I'm just going to speak about my own. Well, I think about this quote my, my great-grandfather had. I've been reading his memoirs because I'm, I'm, I'm doing another project writing about him. But he was talking about how he didn't like modern architecture because where would the birds live? Because, you know, the pigeons, right, can roost in all of the little cornices and the Gothic statues and stuff, you know, on like the sort of ornament of a tenement. But where do the birds live when a building is just a glass cube? I guess I want places where the birds can live and where people can hide secret notes to each other and where there's something to look at all the time and where it rewards looking and where it's at human scale. That's what I mean in a lot of ways. And also lots of Rococo ceiling rosettes and plants. Well, see, that's the thing, you know, you, you and I are both grumpy critics of contemporary architecture. I've been accused when I've written about this of being a reactionary, but I tend to think that there is something, it's quite a simple critique, which is that when you look at buildings before a certain time, there is so much richness aesthetically where you, know, you can look at a building five times and never notice the layers of ornamentation. And that just as ornament went out of fashion in the 20th century, I just feel as if the world got more boring. It's so true. It's so true. And I feel sometimes that there's almost this Puritan dislike of people for wanting ornament. Like, oh, you like these vulgar columns and these vulgar rosettes and these vulgar things and you shouldn't like that. And you should like something else. You should like something that's conceptual and smart. But then I try to think, imagine if you were a chef and you were responsible for cooking for a cafeteria and people did not have the option of eating food other than your cafeteria and people in that cafeteria like to eat a certain thing and you said, no, you're all going to eat 
bitter gruel and what do you call it? That micro cuisine. You're all going to eat high concept yeah. cuisine with various foams and types of seaweed, and it's going to be bitter. But you're going to conceptually think about this experience. And everyone told you, no, we don't like that. We want to eat. Steak and salad and sushi and all the delicious things, and you said no. I'm an artist, and you're going to eat my food no matter what. That's what architects are doing. They're creating an art that other people can't opt out of experiencing, while not really taking into account people's preferences. I've always found it kind of important to distinguish between critiquing minimalism and a lack of ornament and defending. You know, there is, I think, a very valid critique of the kind of McMansion-style ornamentation for its own sake with no actual understanding of or artistic vision behind the particular things that you are adding to a place. And I, I guess craft and intricacy, they only matter if there is some intent or, or vision behind them. And, and I wonder how you think about, you know, what's worth adding to the world. Is pretty for the sake of pretty good, or do things have to have some sort of meaning when you create them? It depends. I think that there's work that I do that you know does have a concept that I think through it very, very deeply in every single aspect of it. But then sometimes I'm commissioned to do beautiful pictures of Syrian poets in the library of a school for refugee kids, and I think that that's enough, you know? Yeah. One of the things that strikes me about your art is that it has this kind of combination of complexity and unpretentiousness. I mean, you said in the book that you, you've, you've wanted to produce, you've done pictures where you wanted to produce a whole universe in the picture. And yet also, you know, you're not afraid to just try and draw a person and capture their essence as well as possible. I think this is part of, you know, having any sort of craft or trade be really yours. I mean, think of all of the writers. Like, let's say we're going to look at someone like Sartre. Like Sartre, you know, he, God, I'm butchering the French here. But he, you know, wrote massive philosophy books. And then he also just churned out a lot of introductions to his friend's books. And there was no contradiction that everything that he ever wrote in his entire life should be a massive philosophy book. I think I'd say, like, there's no distinction between high and low in what you do. Sort of like a potpourri of everything. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think anyone who really loves their specific craft, which, you know, art is mine, will kind of want to use it to consume and take on the world. And that means using it for a variety of different functions. Yeah. You strike me also, though, as kind of the embodiment of the philosophy, you've got to know the rules in order to break them, because you're so like, I didn't realize by the time you were my age, which is 29, you've been drawing for 25 years, is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been drawing since I was four. Well, my mother is an amazing artist, and her whole family are artists. And so I just grew up with that. And I had a lot of advantage in that way, because many people, if their family aren't artists, they see being an artist as this very like high-faluting, faraway thing that either you know you starve to death doing or else it's something they do in like fancy galleries somewhere whereas for me because my mother drew a children's packaging i was like oh drawing is a way that you earn a lower middle class living and that's what it is it is a skill that you do it has all of these tools i still remember like you know being so intrigued with my mother's markers with her airbrush i remember you know being a bad little girl that would pound on her door when she had deadlines and break her heart you know i always just saw art as this very, very natural way that adults could make a living. 
And so I've always done it. And I've never seen being an artist as something that was any more impractical than a carpenter's son might see being a carpenter. As I understand it, you know, your introduction to art, you've been very formal in your training a little bit in a way that I feel like is is very uncommon, this kind of level of the formal study of the craft of how to make every different type of thing. my training is that formal. I know people who go to ateliers and they know how to do these perfect, you know, French Russian master style paintings. And I cannot do that. I can't even do perspective really correctly. I certainly can't make oil paints do my bidding. However, I think that I have perhaps the level of obsessive study, especially of certain illustrators that you know most of my fellow illustrators do. I think that it would be mm-hmm. unusual if you were comparing me to people who went through MFA programs. But it's not unusual if you were comparing me to, say, a lot of the people who illustrate for current affairs. Right. Well, okay, so what does go on in an MFA program? <laughs> I'm not sure. I have. I, I can't even parody it because I've never been in one. But as far as I understand it, they just cr- produce very, very few pieces of art and they talk about them a lot. I've always wanted to just be able to draw a thing that resembles the actual object in the world. I've always fantasized about being able to not draw really well, but to show that I can understand what a thing looks like. And so I've tried twice to take art classes. And both times, the way that the class has begun is by presenting us with a model and going, now draw this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's because drawing is something that you, it's a physical skill. It, it, it's with your hands. It's just like if you went to, you know, a ballet class or a sports class, they would like probably start by having you do some sort of physical exercise. That's essentially what that is. That's a physical exercise of learning to make your hand make the motions that show what your eye is seeing. I found that like, I wish there was more kind of actual clear instruction in the technique because I don't know, there seems like there's a body of accumulated knowledge that all the illustrators have access to, but that a lot of people don't tell you about. (laughs) I don't think that I was born so talented. I think some people are born crazy brilliant. I wasn't. But I think that what we all have in common is that we're born stubborn and we're born obsessive. Mm. And there's just this sort of knowledge you learn by doing something every day for six or seven years. And a lot of it can't even be taught. A lot of it is like, what a pencil feels like in your hand or the exact moment like when you want to suck up a bead of ink with a towel or whatever like what that feels like you know it's something that yes is a physical skill and you can only learn it by doing it and you can have like a certain amount of instruction but ultimately anyone who's a good teacher will sit you down and will be like okay you want to learn to draw hands look at your hand draw it do that a hundred times yeah what really strikes me reading drawing blood is that level of obsessiveness that has led you to get to the point where you are i mean the uh, the phenomenal amount of actual work and the like eight hour 10 hour 14 hour days your week in hell where you locked yourself in a hotel room and did 270 feet of drawings in a week yes yes what (laughs) i mean i was just sick of how i drew and i figured that the only way to find out what i actually wanted to do was to draw so much that i didn't have any more cliche in me draw the cliche <laughs> what <laughs> it doesn't make sense like you just draw and you draw and you draw and then eventually you, you lose all your stock images because you've already stuck them on a wall so you have to think of something new that's what it means wow 
I want to ask you about politics and art because you, a lot of your pieces have been very political. You've done all your work for Matt Taibbi's book. You did your, your, your Occupy work. You've done Refugees. And, you know, the old cliche is that political art can't be good and it ends up being propaganda. I'm certain you reject that. Well, it's very, very silly. I mean, so much of the art that is considered canonical classical art was political art at the time. We just don't think of it like that anymore because people don't care about whatever specific family it was meant to aggrandize, right? Much of the art that was done in the Renaissance, it was either done to aggrandize specific politically powerful families or to aggrandize the Catholic Church, which was a political entity. Is that not all political art? We just don't view it in that way now. I think perhaps when people are saying that political art isn't good, what they're saying is that if your goal in creating the work is exclusively to advance a certain political thing and you have no other interests whatsoever, not even the interest of being visually experimental, not even the interest of creating something gorgeous, not even the interest in pushing your form. If it's just solely about, I don't know, saying Stalin is a cool guy, then yeah, it's going to suck. But generally good political art, it has a political point, but it also has other interests and other things it's doing at the same time. There's a lovely quote that you have in the book where you, you, know, so you reject the idea that there are sort of two ideas, which is the first, the idea that politics had to be grim, and second, the idea that art had to be frivolous. It was from a book I read when I was, I guess I was maybe 19 or 20, called Explosive Acts. Toulouse-Lautrec, Felix Benayon, Art and Anarchy in the Fin de Cicle. I think that's the title. And it was this history. I'm not sure exactly how accurate it was, but it was very emotionally stirring, the way that inaccurate histories often are, that posited that Toulouse-Lautrec was a secret anarchist radical. I had all sorts of ways that it posited this that I'm a bit blurry on. But when I was a teenager reading this, I was like, my God, you can have a life where simultaneously you are watching all those beautiful girls dance on stage and drinking absinthe and documenting bordellos and hanging out with all these cool artists, but you could also be working with the revolution. That can happen. You can do both. And it was an idea that was very influential on me, I suppose, at the time. One of my favorite pieces on politics and art that you did was a few years ago for Politico, you reviewed George W. Bush's paintings, which you suggested were not just a failure as works, but also were kind of reflected his failure of moral vision and were a lost opportunity to actually find some piece of humanity within himself. I think the thing that occurred to me about those paintings is that, yes, Bush has no talent. He is a bad painter. They all look like nightmares. But it wasn't just that. It was that Bush has been able to do every single dream in the world without any talent. He's been able to go to an Ivy League school while being stupid. He has been able to run a baseball team while being bad at it. He's been able to be the governor and he's been able to be the president. Why wouldn't he get to be able to be an artist with no talent? But he gets to live out every single fantasy in the world while failing at it. And in some ways, this is perhaps his most benign attempt at that. I love your opening line in that article. I think it's the opening line where you say, you know, the greatest piece of art that he was ever involved with was when the journalist threw shoes at his head, which to me is one of the most beautiful moments in American political history. That journalist, by the way, he's a member of Iraqi parliament now, and he's on Twitter. He is on Twitter. He's great on Twitter. (laughs) 
You know, the New Yorker was very positive about Bush's paintings. Really? What did they say about Bush's paintings? They said that he, he demonstrated impressive talent for a president. Ability to hold a brush, kind of. I mean, he did do them himself, unlike Jeff Koons. That's true. They definitely all, all himself. They did say that he was remarkable. I think they called him talented, So, but you disagree. I feel that this is indicative of the fact that people who are already powerful... <laughs> are held mm-hmm. to a lower standard. Well, yeah, I do want to, you know, getting back to that thing about the way in which there is the sort of currency of praise that is dished out that seems not to correspond with the actual hierarchy of talent or labor. When you go into a contemporary art museum, what just makes you scream? <laughs> what just makes you go, oh, God. Well, to be honest, I don't go. In, I don't go into a lot of them. What do you do? Oh, <laughs> sorry. It's hard for me to me to say because I, when I do go to museums, which I, I don't do enough, I like to look at like art, sort of art from all over the world. Like I was obsessed with the Islamic wing of the the Met, and I used to stand in the Damascus room when I was growing up, or I would look mm-hmm. at all of the, the miniatures. They have an amazing collection of miniatures, and I would think like, how did they make it blend like this? How did they make it turn? And, for me, I wouldn't look at something that I hated. I want to look at things that I love. Well, that's very positive. Yeah, your part about Islamic art is great. And thinking about, you know, how to make certainly buildings beautiful or how to make the everyday world beautiful, the complexity of that kind of style is definitely, I would assume, the kind of thing you're thinking about. Absolutely that, but also sometimes just like looking at Qajar miniatures or looking at Mughal miniatures especially, looking at the sort of infinitely complicated detail, the the patterns combined with the like most perfectly rendered faces in the world. I, I don't know. It could put me into a hallucinatory trance. I'm not being very funny now. I'm just I'm just being a nerd. So that that's that's my jam on the beautiful miniatures of the Qajar and Mughal dynasties. You know, speaking of the arch- the kind of architecture that that just kills the world. I don't know. You're you're in New York, right? You're a New Yorker. Hudson um. Yards, yeah, Hudson Yards. I was just gonna say Hudson. Y- have you been to Hudson Yards? I have not been to Hudson Yards, but my my mother has been to Hudson Yards. She basically told me it was like a giant shopping mall. But the thing that disconcerts me the most is, you know, there's that statue that's like the human hamster wheel. Yeah, that that thing, the Lovecraft horror (laughs) sort of portal thing. Apparently, all photos of that thing, including like maybe selfies you take inside of it, are intellectual property of Hudson Yards. It actually is the machine for alienation, the machine for the theft of everything. I love Jeremiah Moss so much. Oh, yeah. Vanishing New York. Yeah, he wrote Vanishing New York. And he talks about places like Hudson Yards. Hudson Yards wasn't done by the time that he wrote, but he talked about that sort of place as the revenge of the suburban upon the city. And that, that's what it's like, this attempt to create these places that are entirely vehicles for selling overpriced shit. Stealing every single aspect of the experience, right? Even your selfie, and then having you leave quickly. It's a place where there's nowhere for the birds to live, right? It's a place... Absolutely. Yeah, where there's no life. It's just about sort of squeezing people around, having them move, and just about the circulation of money. And it's it's absolutely reprehensible. I feel that the Hudson Yardsification of the world is one of the most horrifying things I can imagine. 
And unlike other previous regimes, regimes that built places like Versailles, Hudson Yards isn't going to even make beautiful ruins. You're not going to be able to reprise it for anything good. Jeremiah Moss's book, Vanishing New York, is fantastic, and I reviewed it for Current Affairs, and the, the headline that I used for the review was, Everything You Love Will Be Eaten Alive, because Moss sets up this, this kind of romantic city, which he says is often confused with nostalgia. This kind of romantic city versus this corporatized, bland, minimalist city that is sort of eating that other city. Exactly, exactly. And while New York is ever-changing, that's true. And while New Yorkers are ever grumpy, and while New Yorkers always think that the point at which they were young and sexy is the last point that New York was good, it is true that there's something fundamentally different between the Woolworth building, or the Chrysler building, and 20,000 TD banks. There's something fundamentally different between places that might be more expensive even, but where people can like meet and where those places can become something different when the business fails, and places where people will not meet because they're bank lobbies and real estate offices, and which will just be bland ruins when the world changes. Over the course of your life, as I was reading Drawing Blood, you've sort of gravitated towards the places that are full of that kind of nameless quality that Moss is trying to describe. You know, you spent time at Shakespeare and Company in Paris when you were young, at the at the Chelsea Hotel. I mean, all of these sort of classic places where I guess that, that city of romance takes refuge against the encroaching suburbanization. Exactly. And I think perhaps it's become, I don't know, trendy for some people on the left to sort of tut-tut at those places and be like, oh, they didn't mm. save the world. They didn't, they, they didn't create full socialism. You know, how, how dare they? But those places are magic, you know, they're magic. Even if they don't save the world, they provide a, a place of refuge and the world is much poorer for the fact that they're gone. I felt that the first time I set foot in an Occupy encampment because you write a lot about, about Occupy in the book. And when I first went to Occupy Boston, I had this sudden, I remember getting out of the subway and seeing it and having this sudden welling up of this indescribable feeling I'd never felt before, and I still don't know how to convey to other people, where it was like a magic place. It was like suddenly people had forgotten all of their selfishness, their sectarianism, all of the crap that keeps people apart from each other and that thwarts people from working together, and instead they had, for this just tiny moment, engaged in what I could only call prefigurative politics. They had built Mm -hmm. in parks a sort of future city of what the world might be like. Now, of course, you know, this fell apart and was destroyed by the police and was riven with horrific internal disagreements and horrors that we all know about, any of us who sat through a meeting. However, for that moment, it is love. Now, I think the thing that I learned is that just as the first hot flush of love is actually not enough to create a stable lifetime partnership, that the first hot flush of love is not enough to sustain systematic change unless you have something else to back it up, especially when there's so much arrayed against you. Occupy is this kind of, to me, beautiful failed experiment 
where you had more democracy than I've ever seen before. And of course, all of the flaws that come with more democracy. And it feels to me like looking back on it, the question has to be, well, how do we salvage what was incredible about that without descending into totally disastrous parts of it? I do believe in organizations. I do believe in a certain degree of hierarchy. One thing that I'll always remember is this endless meeting at some Occupy branch, not the New York one, that I saw where there was all this discussion of what would be on this banner that should be put. And then the final person who spoke was someone who was from the committee that made the banner who said that there was no cloth and so they couldn't make the banner at all. And to me, this is the sort of thing that hierarchy prevents, which is that the people who are in charge of doing the work of making the banner say if a banner can indeed be made before everyone holds forth on what should be on it. Yes, I feel as if there is a middle ground between absolute direct democracy and Stalinism. (laughs) Exactly. I I mean, I tend to believe that there should be lots of leaders, that people should have the freedom to actually do work and make projects, but also that you can't create utopia by having 27-hour meetings that are built on consensus where the final person who actually wins and is able to block anyone else is the person who has the trust fund and no children and no sick parents because they're the person that doesn't have to go home. One of the things that I, the other things that I really like about your work is it's not just the real embrace of aesthetic pleasure and making the world more beautiful through putting intricate and amazing things everywhere, but it's also the way in which you use art to preserve things that would disappear or or convey the unseen. You talk when you when you went to Guantanamo, you said you had this phrase that I love which is drawing the men back into existence. I thought it was incredible. Thank you. Well, Guantanamo is one of the most visually censored places in the world. It's a place where Photography is technically allowed, but once you've complied with all of the OPSEC rules, you realize that your camera is pointing at the floor. It's a place where it's very, 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 very hard to get images out of. And, you know, when you can't see who people are, when you can't see how they live, when you can't see that they have faces, those people kind of cease to be human. They become boogeymen in orange jumpsuits. They become ghosts. My goal was to show what it looked like, and I had a lot more freedom to do that just because a sketchbook... Okay, let me give you an example. Let's say I wanted to create an image of a scene in Guantanamo, but I'm a photographer. And the image has like a bunch of guards, right? It has a force feeding chair. If I'm a photographer, I'm not allowed to take picture of anyone's faces. So I will have to tilt my camera down so that everyone's faces are cut off, right? If my camera takes a picture of someone's face, the army will come to my camera and they'll see that in the viewfinder and they'll delete it. Whereas as an artist, I can draw that, and what I did was I replaced everyone's faces with these sort of dead, smiley masks. Because I thought that the individual identity of the people was less important for me than to draw what that scene was like. And in some ways, showing them as these cogs with these interchangeable masks was a bit more true to the experience. That was what I meant by being able to draw around censorship, and also by being able to show the censorship too, right? When I do that, it shows that I'm not allowed to draw those faces because there are masks there. Of the reporting that you've done around the world, of all of the pictures you've done around the world, what are you proudest that you've been able to sort of preserve or convey that wouldn't have been seen unless you conveyed it through seeing it yourself and then presenting it to others? This isn't something that I I saw myself, but the thing I'm proudest of is my collaboration with Marwan Hisham, which is my last book, Mm. Brothers of the Gun. That 
was very interesting because that was me drawing places that I could not go to, like Roca, which was occupied by ISIS. And instead, what me and Marwan did was we worked very, very, very closely to do something that he called downloading his memories, which is that I would interview Marwan mm. and I would do these sketches and then he would tell me my sketches were wrong. He's the only one allowed to do that. And he would sometimes pose for mm. me just so I could get the right posture of someone. He would find me reference of like the exact maybe type of energy drink that some bastard ISIS fighter drank. And through all of this, I would like do sketches and sketches and then I would draw and then he would tell me no and yes. And we would create these approximations of his memories of Raqqa, his memories of the revolution, of his memories of religious school, his memories of the first protest where the regime fired bullets at him, or of the ISIS bastards that swarmed into a cafe that he worked at. I did 82 illustrations for that book. I did it the same number of illustrations that Goya did for his disasters of war. And for me, that was like excavating memories back. And it's it's really the project I'm proudest of. Yeah, so that's that's Brothers of the Gun, memoir of the Syrian war, which is available at the moment. I think everyone should pick up. I just have one final thing that I, I wanted to ask you because I was just curious. is When you go out into the world and you see the things that are beautiful and the things that you think are, are not beautiful and, and the way that the latter is colonizing the former, if Molly Crabapple had infinite time and the entire world to cover in beautiful things. When she was through with the world, and if someone stepped outside their door, what would it look like? What are some of the things that you think we would have in a, in a world more beautiful than the one we happen to live in now? Well, I think for anything like that to exist, it couldn't be me alone doing it. I think that part <laughs> of what makes magic is that sort of infinite variation. But what would I do here? It's hard for me. I've never been a big thinker in this way, but there's this thing that I love. There's this old man whose name I'm forgetting, I, I ought to look it up, who takes broken dishes and broken mirrors and broken bottles out of the trash and smashes them up and then he does mosaics over all of the um, lampposts on the Lower East Side and the East Village. And he's homeless, he's a veteran, he's disabled. He would only get like a few scraps of funding here and there from the city council and not even that. He has like a GoFundMe, I think, still up that people should donate to. But I remember these lampposts when I was, you know, in college walking through there. And they paid history to all of the rebels that lived in the East Village. And they were made out of literal trash, right? They're made out of broken beer bottles. And yet they were glittering and fragmented and gorgeous. And they were there. And so I suppose that would be the spirit that I would like to think in. See, I knew I'd get a good answer out of you on that question, even though it sounded like a stupid question. It's not a, it's not a stupid question. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Molly Grabable, for joining me on Current Affairs.